Following the events of his resurrection, Jesus revealed himself to two disciples on the road to Emmaus. When he asked why they were distraught, they rehearsed the events of Jesus' death at the hands of the chief priests and religious rulers. The reason for the, their distress is summed up in Luke twenty four seventeen. But we were hoping that it was he who is going to redeem Israel. They saw Jesus as he who was going to redeem Israel, which meant that they hoped that he was the promised Messiah. After listening to the disciples, Jesus revealed that he was risen and indeed the Messiah. Luke twenty four twenty seven states, Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scripture. Aside from the fact that Luke equates the writings of Moses and the prophets as scripture, it is worth noting that Jesus used the Hebrew scriptures to prove that he was genuinely the Messiah. Jesus later appeared to the apostles and other disciples in Jerusalem, again explaining that he was indeed the Messiah. Jesus says in Luke twenty four forty six, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, i.e. the Hebrew Scriptures, must be fulfilled. Jesus' point was that God spoke of Messiah's birth, life, death, resurrection, and reign, throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. Within the Hebrew Scriptures, there are 456 verses containing prophecies about the Messiah. Within those verses, there is often more than one prophetical statement. Take a moment to consider with me the first Messianic promise, prophecy, if you will, as found in Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. In this one verse, there are four prophecies. The Messiah would be human, the Messiah would be born of a woman, the Messiah would reconcile people to God, and the Messiah would personally crush Satan. During his first advent, Jesus fulfilled 300 of these messianic prophecies. Matthew is one of Jesus' disciples was an eyewitness to the fulfillment of many of these prophecies. Thus he wrote his gospel record to demonstrate to the Jews that Jesus fulfilled those Old Testament messianic prophecies. He was indeed their long-awaited Messiah and King. And as such, Matthew begins with this all-important messianic chronicle. The chronicle will establish Jesus' messiahship and kingship. Let's begin with Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1 and verse 17. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. The capstones of the Hebrew scripture are genealogical records, Genesis and Chronicles. The title of the first book taken from the Septuagint is Genesis. The term Genesis is the Greek translation of the Hebrew term Toledot, meaning these are the generations of. The 11 Toledots found in Genesis are genealogical records tracing the lineage of the Israelites 
back to Adam. The last book of the Hebrew Scriptures, in its original canon order, is Chronicles, later divided into 1st and 2nd Chronicles. The book of Chronicles establishes the genealogical record of the Davidic line from which the promised Messiah would come. The Chronicles, however, ends without the penultimate descendant of the Davidic line, the Messiah. Now, the first book in the New Covenant, or New Testament canon, is the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew's Gospel begins with the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. The term record, biblos, refers to a collection of information about someone or something. Genealogy, Genesis, means beginning or origin. As stated, Genesis translates that Hebrew term toledot, meaning these are the generations of. Now it's interesting that the Greek here in Matthew 1.1 is identical to the Greek in the Septuagint translation of Genesis 5.1. Biblos Genosius, or the book of generations, or the record of genealogy. And whereas Genesis begins with the genealogical record of the first Adam, Matthew, the first New Testament book, begins with the genealogical record of the last Adam. 1 Corinthians 15.45, So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. How fitting is it that Matthew begins with a chronology a chronology that establishes Jesus as the promised Messiah and the rightful heir to the Davidic throne. You see, Matthew then is not only the equivalent to Genesis, it is the natural and logical continuation of the Chronicles narrative. Matthew begins this messianic chronicle revealing that the Messiah's name is Jesus. Now, Jesus the Latinized form of the Greek name Iesus, transliterates the Hebrew name Yeshua or Joshua. His name means Yahweh is salvation. And so his name reveals the purpose for his coming as explained in Matthew 1.21. You shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Note also that Matthew sets forth that Jesus is who? He is the Messiah. Now, unlike many English translations, which transliterates Christos as Christ, the NASB correctly translates the Greek term Christos as Messiah here in Matthew 1.1. Christ or Christos translates the Hebrew term Messiah or Messiah. John 1.41, we have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. Translate, transliterating Christos as Christ has resulted in many thinking that Christ is Jesus' second name. To be clear, Christ is not a name, but a title. The term or the title Messiah means anointed one. It is used in the Hebrew scriptures for priests or kings called by God and consecrated for service. For example, in Leviticus 4 or 5. Then the anointed Messiah, priest, is to take some of the blood of the bull and bring it to the tent of meeting. 2 Samuel twenty two fifty one. 51. He is a tower of deliverance to his king and shows loving kindness to his anointed 
Messiah to David and his descendants forever. Now, while there were many messiahs or anointed ones in the Hebrew Scriptures, they all pointed to the promised Messiah who would uniquely serve as both priest and king. Psalm 110, verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 13 and 16, I will raise up your descendants after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now for Matthew's purposes, he focuses on the kingship aspect of Jesus' messiahship. Thus, Matthew continues his Messianic Chronicle by stating that Jesus the Messiah is the son of David, the son of Abraham. In doing so, Matthew presents Jesus as a critical component in the fulfillment of the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants. So let's, let's think about this for a moment. The Messiah, we're going to see here that the Messiah is the promised seed of the Abrahamic covenant. Yahweh initiated a covenant with Abraham that included a threefold blessing of land, descendant, and blessing. Genesis 12, 1-3. Go to the land, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Regarding these descendants, Yahweh promised to establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants for an everlasting covenant. I will give you and to your descendants after you all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. Genesis 17, 7 and 8. Now note here that this term descendants, Zerah, is a singular masculine noun meaning offspring or seed. Here in Genesis 17, 7 to 8, the translators interpret it this singular noun, zira, as a plural, descendants. Now, while zira can refer to a group, its use in Genesis 17 was not just a guarantee of many descendants, but to one specific descendant or seed. According to Strong's Concordance, the term seed, zira, designates the whole line of descendants as a unit, yet it is deliberately flexible enough to denote either one person who epitomizes the whole group, i.e. the man of promise and ultimately Christ, or the many persons in that the whole line of natural and or spiritual descendants. Precisely so in Genesis 3.15. Now regarding the seed of Genesis 17, Paul declared in Galatians 3.16, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one. And to your seed, that is Christ. You see, the descendants or seed promised to Abraham is the same promised seed in the Adamic covenant as found in Genesis 3.15. Her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Her seed was a promised son who would come as a redeemer of humanity. And as per the Abrahamic covenant, this seed will come to Abraham and bless all the families of the earth. 
being the son of Abraham or seed of Abraham, qualifies Jesus to be the promised redeemer through whom the world would be blessed. Now when Matthew refers to Jesus the Messiah as the son of David, he establishes that the Messiah is the promised seed of the Davidic covenant. In the Davidic covenant, Yahweh promised David that his descendant or seed would reign on David's throne over his people forever. I will raise up your descendant, Zerah, after you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your throne shall be established forever. 2 Samuel 7, 12-13 and 16. This descendant or seed is the same seed promised in the Adamic and Abrahamic covenants. Matthew refers to this descendant as the son of David. The term son, huias, refers to a male offspring, whether biological or adoptive. That stated, even if a son is not a biological descendant of David, as long as they have been adopted as a son, they would have the same legal claim to David's throne. Though Jesus was not the biological son of Joseph, as his adopted son, Jesus had the legal right to be David's heir and sit on the throne as king. In the 17 verses of Matthew's Messianic Chronicle, David is mentioned by name five times. However, to further drive home the Messiah's relationship to David, Matthew divides his chronicle into three sections of 14 generations built around the Davidic monarchy. From Abraham to David, from David to the deportation to Babylon, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah. Matthew 1.17 The first 14 generations is the pre-monarchy period. The second 14 are the monarchy period. And the last 14 are the post-monarchy period. Now, in comparing this genealogy to those in Genesis and the Chronicles, one will note that several individuals are missing. However, skipping generations was a common occurrence in Jewish chronologies. To denote someone as a son, huias, does not necessarily mean that they were an immediate offspring, but that they were a descendant, perhaps a grandson. By ordering the chronology in three groups of 14, Matthew presents it in a systematic and memorable manner. However, there is more to the organization of this chronology than being systematic and memorable. In Hebrew, each letter of the alphabet has a numeric value. The number 14 is conveyed through three Hebrew letters, the Dalit, the Wa, and the Dalit. Now, Dalit is the equivalent of four, and the Wa is the equivalent of six. Numerically, Dalit, Wa, Dalit is the numerical equivalent of 4 plus 6 plus 4, which equals 14. As well, when written as Dalit Wa Dalit, it spells out the Hebraic name Dawid, or David. By presenting the Messianic chronology in three groups of 14, Matthew further underscores Jesus' connection to David. Matthew leaves no doubt with his readers that Jesus was the divinely promised seed of the woman, seed of Abraham, and the son of David that would reign forever upon his throne. As the promised seed, Jesus is the Messiah, the one anointed to redeem humanity. And so Matthew's Messianic Chronicle establishes 
Jesus's messiahship. Now, Matthew's Messianic Chronicle not only establishes Jesus's messiahship, but it establishes his kingship. The Chronicle establishes Jesus's kingship. Matthew chapter 1, verses 2 to 16. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezra, the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab, the father of Nishan. And Nishan, the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boab was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat the father of Joram. Joram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amon, and Amon the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation of Babylon. After the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Sheatiel. Sheatiel became the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadak, Zadak the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Iliud. Iliud was the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Nathan, Nathan the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, Joseph the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. Now it is easy to skip the details of genealogical records found in the scriptures because they seemingly have no relation to us as modern readers. However, biblical genealogies or chronologies are crucial not only for the Jews but also for us as modern believers for several reasons. See, the genealogies confirm the value of people to God. They confirm an individual's Jewishness. They confirm the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. And they confirm an individual's right to serve as priest or king. And by confirming these four issues, the Messianic Chronicle establishes Jesus' kingship. Let's begin with the fact that the Chronicle confirms the value of people to God. Now one thing stands out reading this chronology, it is not fabricated. No one attempting to establish the Messiah's pedigree would devise a list of notorious saintly sinners and downright scoundrels. An examination of this list reveals some scandalous situations. As well, it also depicts some moments of faith and grace. An examination of some of the 42 men listed will show that Jesus had some skeletons in his ancestral closet. Though noted for his faith, Abraham lied about the identity of his wife on two occasions and then had an extramarital relationship with another woman to produce an heir. Jacob was a swindler and conniver who lied to his father and cheated his brother and uncle. Judah sold his brother into slavery, married a pagan woman, and then had an affair with a prostitute who was actually his daughter-in-law. David, the friend of God, who had multiple wives, raped another man's wife and then murdered her husband. Solomon, despite his wisdom, engaged in relations with pagan women and worshipped their false gods. Rehoboam failed to heed godly counselors and divided the kingdom in two. Abijah was noted for following the sins of his father and having a heart not devoted to God. 
Asa, though generally a decent king, failed to destroy the pagan temples erected around God's temple. Jehoshaphat, a godly king, nonetheless failed to destroy the pagan temples and allowed the people to worship false gods. Joram married the daughter of Ahab and did evil in God's sight. Though striving to obey God, Uzziah failed to remove the pagan temples, allowing the people to continue in their idolatry. God struck him with leprosy until his death as a result. Jotham and Hezekiah were two righteous kings. However, between Jotham and Hezekiah, Ahaz was a wicked king who sacrificed his child as a burnt offering to pagan deities. Manasseh was a man of mixed character. Josiah, however, recovered God's law and established religious reforms throughout the nation. Sadly, Josiah's grandson, Jeconiah, or Jehoiakim, did not follow in his grandfather's obedience to God. Jehoiakim's abominations were so great that God cursed him and his descendants, forbidding them from ever reigning as king. Under his reign, the kingdom of Judah went into Babylonian captivity. Not much is known about the rest of Jehoiakim's descendants, save for Zerubbabel, a key player in leading the Jewish people upon their return from exile. Zerubbabel was a godly man who found favor with God. Haggai 2.23 says, I will make you a, like a signet ring, for I have chosen you. While he would not reign as king, God appointed Zerubbabel to be the governor of the province of Jerusalem under Persian rule. Now notice, four women are also named besides the 42 men in this genealogy. To be clear, the inclusion of women was unusual in a male-dominated culture where genealogies were only interested in paternal lineage. These four women are also unique because they are all Gentile, scandalized, and oppressed. The first woman, Tamar, was a childless widow who disguised herself as a pagan temple prostitute and engaged in an ancestral relationship with her father-in-law to produce an heir. Now just as a side note here, pagan Hittite law demanded that if no son was available to produce a male heir, then the father-in-law was obligated. So she worked within her pagan culture. The second woman, Rahab, was a Canaanite and a prostitute. The third woman, Ruth, was a Moabitess, a descendant of Lot's incestuous relationship with his daughter. The Moabites were also divinely cursed by God for their treatment of Israel during the wilderness wanderings. To further muddy the waters, Ruth, under the direction of the less-than-spiritual Naomi, seduced Boaz to get him to marry her there in the threshing room floor. The fourth woman, Bathsheba, was the wife of David's friend Uriah. When David should have been on the front line with his men during wartime, he stayed in Jerusalem. While there, he lusted after Bathsheba and raped her. After discovering her pregnancy, David attempt, attempted to make it appear to be Uriah's child. After Uriah would not engage in relations with his wife, David had him murdered. Now, while much more could be said about these women, one thing that must be underscored is that they each acted to secure their futures, all while being oppressed. When Judah and his sons prevented Tamar from having an heir, she found a way to produce an heir, securing her future. When God declared that Jericho was to be destroyed, Rahab hid the Jewish spies and helped them escape on the promise that she and her family would not be destroyed. In doing so, she secured her future. When Ruth left Moab and returned with Naomi to Bethlehem, she was an outsider, widowed, and financially destitute. She went to work, gathering grain from the field to secure her future. Furthermore, when she met Boaz in the grain threshing room floor at night, she secured her future by guaranteeing he would take her as his wife. Bathsheba's case is unique because she was the victim of someone else's sin. In turn, God blessed her and promised that her second child, Solomon, would reign after David's death. Later, when David was upon his deathbed, his son Adonijah was placed on the throne. 
Knowing that he would kill her and Solomon, Bathsheba reminded that Nathan and David of Yahweh's promise, urging that they announce Solomon as king, which they did. Bathsheba guaranteed her future by securing her son's kingship. See, my friends, by including these women in the Messianic Chronicle, Matthew testifies that God regarded them as worthy and blessed them. Though displeased with their actions and the actions done to them, God showered them with grace. Their inclusion also prepares us as the reader for the questionable event surrounding Jesus' birth. You see, by grace, Joseph considered Mary worthy and married her while pregnant with a child that was not his. Scandalous indeed. You see, the Messianic Chronicle confirms the value of people to God. This list is filled with men and women of various ethnicities and walks of life who were sinners. Despite their sins, gender, ethnicity, and standing, God chose to include each of them in the genealogy of the Messiah. How splendid that the very one who came to redeem sinful humanity was descended from saintly sinners and downright scoundrels. Now notice that the Chronicle not only confirms the value of people to God, but the Chronicle confirms the Messiah's Jewishness. In order to be the king of the Jews, Jesus needed to be a Jew, that is, a descendant of Abraham. Where does Jesus' chronology begin? It begins with Abraham, as Matthew 5, 2 declares, Abraham was the father of Isaac. The chronology ends in Matthew 5, 16 with, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. Thus, the Messianic Chronicle confirms the Messiah's Jewishness. As well, the Chronicle confirms the fulfillment of Messianic prophecy. For Jesus the Messiah to be king, the Messianic prophecies must be fulfilled. Consider the prophecy of Isaiah 11.1. 1. The prophet Isaiah declares, A shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. This prophecy foretells the coming of the Messiah to establish his kingdom. Now note that the prophecy begins with the stem of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David. The term stem, Giza, refers to a tree stump that remains after being cut down. At this point in Israel's history, the Assyrians had decimated Israel. Israel was like a tree cut off at the stump. Isaiah foretells that from this stump, the decimated remains of Israel, a shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse. A shoot, hoter, refers to a twig or a branch that grows out of a tree. How often has a tree been felled that the branches of new growth sprout from the tree stump, indicating that there's still life in the roots of the tree? Interestingly, this term shoot, hoter, can refer to a child, particularly a son. In other words, from the roots of Jesse, a son will come forth. In particular, the promised son would come through David and will be the Messiah. Isaiah restates the prophecy in a parallel line. A branch from his roots will bear fruit. The term branch, nazer, is a synonym for the shoot, hoter, and is used in this prophecy to denote a descendant from the root. Hence, the root is Jesse, and the branch is the Messiah. As an interesting aside, the city of Nazareth derives from the term branch, or nazer. Uniquely, then, the town of Nazareth can be translated as branch town. Citizens of Nazareth were called Nazarenes, or branches. 
Matthew records that Mary, Joseph, and Jesus came and lived in a city called Nazareth to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Jesus was called the Nazarene or the branch in fulfillment of Isaiah 11.1. Now the prophet Jeremiah provides clarification of the promised descendant of David. He states in Jeremiah 33.15-16 that in those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which he shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priest shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to prepare sacrifices continually. Now specifically, Jeremiah's prophecy refers to a future time when Israel's lands and fortune will be restored as we can note in Jeremiah 30, verse 3. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people. I will bring them back to the land that I gave their forefathers, and they will possess it. The cause of this restoration is the coming of the righteous branch of David that will spring forth from David's line, who will reign as king. Note that Jeremiah refers to the Messiah as the branch of David. However, he uses a different but synonymous term for branch. Isaiah uses the term Nazar, whereas Jeremiah uses the term Sema. Now, Jeremiah's choice of term is significant. When the prophet Nathan announced the terms of the Davidic covenant, David said, God has made an everlasting covenant with me for all my salvation and all my desire. Will he not indeed make it grow? Sema. The term to grow is Sema, meaning to sprout a branch. David declared that God would make his descendants sprout like tree branches. Thus, when Isaiah and Jeremiah refer to the Messiah as sprouting forth as the stem of Jesse or the branch of David, they, they are stating that the Messiah is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Jeremiah also revealed that the Messiah would accomplish four things as king. He'll execute justice and righteousness, Israel will be saved, Jerusalem will dwell in safety, and the Levitical priests will offer offerings and prepare sacrifices eternally. That these four actions have yet to occur does not mean that Jesus is not the Messiah. Remember, Jesus came, but the people rejected him, so he withdrew the establishment of his kingdom until a future period. When Jesus the Messiah returns, he will accomplish all that has been promised of him. Jeremiah further explains that this branch is the promised descendant of the Davidic covenant. David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Now, some claim this promise is unattainable because the Davidic throne ceased in 586 B.C. with Jerusalem's destruction. However, this is a misinterpretation of the text. The promise does not claim that the monarchy would be unbroken, but that there would be an unbroken line of descendants. The prophecies demand that the Messiah be of the lineage of David. According to Matthew 5.1, that Jesus' lineage traces back to who? David the king. It then traces from David to Solomon, down through Joseph, and finally to Jesus. By demonstrating that Jesus is of the lineage of David, the Messianic Chronicle confirms the fulfillment of the biblical prophecy. So it confirms the value of people to God, it confirms his Jewishness, it confirms the fulfillment of biblical prophecy, and notice that the Chronicle confirms Jesus' claim to the kingship. The Messianic Chronicle reveals that Joseph is of the house of David. However, Jesus is not the biological son of Joseph. Throughout Matthew's record, the phrase was the father of is the active form of genao. 
The active voice of Jana'o means to be the male agent responsible for the conception of a child. Therefore, Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, and so forth. But in Matthew 1.16, Jana'o is changed to the passive voice. Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. The passive voice of Jana'o, translated as was born, indicates that Joseph did not sire Jesus. As well, verse 16 states that Joseph was the husband of Mary by whom, echas, Jesus was born. The phrase by whom is a feminine pronoun. Thus, the pronoun points back to Mary, not Joseph. You see, Joseph was the husband of Mary, but it was solely Mary who was involved in Jesus' birth. While Joseph was not the progenitor of Jesus, Jesus was considered his legal heir. Attaching Joseph's lineage to Jesus indicates that Joseph had adopted Jesus as his legal heir. And as the legal heir of jo G Joseph, Jesus has the right to the Davidic throne. Now some would challenge Jesus' legal claim based upon the curse of Jeremiah 22 verse 30. Thus says the Lord, write this man down childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. See, in the context, this curse is made against King Jehoiakim. By cursing Jehoiakim as childless, Yahweh declared that none of his descendants would be allowed to sit on the throne of David and rule as king. And indeed, none of Jehoiakim's children reigned after him. His uncle Zedekiah replaced him and was the last king of Judah before going into captivity. How then can Jesus claim the throne of David if that line is cursed? Fortunately, in God's omniscient providence, there is another messianic chronology. And that chronology is presented in Luke chapter 3. The Lucan genealogy provides Jesus' lineage through Mary. Luke 3, 23. When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli, etc., 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 the son of Nathan, the son of David. Now we need to note here that Mary's lineage is traced paternally through her father, Eli. Remember, Hebrew genealogies typically only record the male descendant, hence Mary's Joseph is listed as the son of Eli. Note the phrase there, as was supposed the son of Joseph. In Greek, every usage of the phrase son of in Luke 3, 23-31 is preceded by a definite article, the, except in verse 23. There's no definite article preceding the phrase son of Joseph. Now in the Greek, the lack of definite article conveys something unusual. It underscores that while Joseph was accepted as Jesus' father, he was not the physical father. As one works through the Lucan genealogy, one will find that Mary is a direct descendant of David like Joseph. However, there's a significant distinction. While Joseph relates to David through Solomon, Mary relates to David through his other son, Nathan. Being descended through Nathan, the curse of Jehoiakim does not apply to Mary or any of her children, including Jesus. Now, typically, inheritance, property, and titles were passed down through the paternal lineage. But there is biblical precedent for transferring an inheritance through a maternal lineage. In Numbers 27, the daughters of Zelophehad of the tribe of Manasseh were granted their father's estate because he had no sons. See, because Jehoiakim's curse tainted Joseph's lineage, Mary, therefore, could legally pass on the Davidic inheritance to Jesus. Furthermore, any legal difficulties through David's adoptive father would not prohibit Jesus from any claim to the throne. 
So from Joseph, Jesus receives his legal claim to kingship, and from Mary, he receives his biological claim to kingship. Indeed, the Messianic Chronicle confirms and establishes Jesus' claim to be king. In Acts chapter 13, Paul and his missionary companions found themselves worshiping in the synagogue at Pisidian Antioch on the Sabbath day. After the reading of the Law and the Prophets, the synagogue leaders approached Paul and asked if he had an exhortation for the people from the Scriptures. Now, as a rabbi, Paul had the authority to exposit the Scriptures in the synagogue. Paul stood and began to rehearse the history of Israel, beginning with their deliverance from Egypt. He spoke on their, of their wilderness wanderings, possession of the land, and subsequent time under the judges. Next, Paul covered the era of Samuel, Saul, and finally David. It is at this junction that Paul states that Yahweh raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has wrought to Israel a savior, Jesus. Acts 13, 22-23. Indeed, the Messianic Chronicle reveals that from the descendants of David, the promised seed, Jesus the Messiah, has come. Why did he come? He came to be a savior, to bless humanity by redeeming us from our sin. Paul says in Galatians 3.8, the scriptures foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. My friends, the Messianic Chronicle historically proves that Jesus is the son of Abraham and the son of David. It demonstrates that though he was the adoptive son of Joseph, he was born to a virgin woman named Mary. Undoubtedly, he is the promised seed of the covenants. The gospel proclaimed to Adam and Eve, foretold that the seed of the woman would come to redeem humanity. The gospel proclaimed to Abraham, foretold the seed would come through Abraham and bless the world. And the gospel proclaimed to David, foretold that the seed would come through David and reign over a redeemed people for all eternity. That gospel continues to be proclaimed today and the Messianic Chronicle demonstrates its fulfillment. The question that you must be asked today, the question you must answer, was the same question that Jesus put to his disciples 2,000 years ago. Who do you say that I am? Is Jesus the son of Abraham, the son of David, the promised seed of the woman, the Messiah, and the king as confirmed by the Messianic Chronicle? Is that who Jesus is to you? Listen, my friend, if you affirm the truthfulness of the Chronicle's claim, then you must repent of your sin. You must believe the gospel. And I pray that you have. If you're listening and you've never repented of your sin, you've never believed the gospel, my friends, you best do so today. You say, well, what is the gospel? The gospel is simply this. Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. He was buried and he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. And so, with the Messianic Chronicle before us, who do you say Jesus is? Is Jesus your Messiah? Is he your king? Have you repented of your sin? Have you believed his gospel? Let's pray. Father God in heaven, as we come before you, we thank you for the birth of Jesus Christ. When the Son of God, the eternal second person, took on human flesh and came into this world via the womb of the woman Mary, as foretold in Genesis 3.15. 
Father, I pray as we've taken time to go through this chronicle, we would see first and foremost your hand in history. But more so than that, Father, we might see your Son, our Messiah. That, Father, we might consider who he is. Who is he to each of us? Is he the son of Abraham? Is he the son of David? Is he the Messiah? Is he the promised king? And Father, I pray that each and every one listening has examined themselves, Father. And Father, if they found themselves not knowing who Jesus is or not confirming that Jesus is who he is as revealed in Scripture, that Lord, you might use your spirit to convict them of truth and of sin and of righteousness. That, Father, you might bring them to repentance and that they might believe the message of the gospel, which has been proclaimed since Genesis. Father, for each of us who have received the gift of salvation, I thank you for sending your Son to redeem us from our sin and from hell and the lake of fire. Again, we say thank you. In your Son's name, amen.